Hello, girlies. This is episode four, season three of Girl Opera Podcast. My name is Tay Kim, ensemble pianist, and I'll be your host for this episode. This episode will focus on the opera Beowulf for the upcoming watch party on July twenty third, and we're here with the composer Hannah Lash. Let's begin. Thank you for joining us today.、Um, the question I have is. What was the inspiration for this modern adaptation of an essentially an old English epic poem? Well, I wanted actually to write something entirely new and just use the name of Beowulf and a few touch points、um, that refer to the epic poem. So it really isn't in any way an ad- adaptation, as it is.、Um, You know, a reference actually, or using it as a slight reference at times for the piece. So the idea was that I wanted to signal、um, by using the title Beowulf that it was about a hero.、Um, and to me, the idea of a hero is actually a very complicated、uh, type of concept. You know, it isn't just simply somebody who sort of swoops in Superman style and saves the day.、Um, and you know, we never. Really find out too much usually in these kind of heroic tales about that person's psychology,、um, and it also seems to me as though there are, as we all know, a lot of different kinds of heroes,、um, and oftentimes the most accessible ones are the ones that give us the most intimate glance into what that's like psychologically.、Um, Not necessarily that、uh, a hero like my Beowulf, who was a doctor, would necessarily you know wear their heart on their sleeves, but yet it's a little bit easier to glimpse、um, clear humanity in somebody like that as opposed to you know the hero in the epic poem or again sort of a superhero figure. Although interestingly enough, as、um, You know, you can observe、uh, a lot of superheroes also sort of have this dark side to them, which I、right. think is, you know, something that's really kind of poignant and not a coincidence by any means. I think a lot of writers, authors, cartoonists have kind of grasped the idea that that's a very complicated role to play.、Um, so oftentimes, you know, the hidden identity of these superheroes is actually something really、um, you know, mixed and complex and. and、um, You know, sometimes a bit twisted. So、uh, I wanted to approach this from a very、uh, real life and very intimate、um, point of view,、um, and I wanted to also address the idea of both the long-term and the short-term psychological ramifications of this person's role、um, with other humanity, other you know, society, and the people that he's interacted with, the environments that he's been in,、um, and the stress that he's lived through. So、uh, you know he's a, a veteran of war. He was a doctor in, in the Iraq War, presumably. Although that's never really made clear in the opera what war it was, and in some sense it doesn't really matter. Although I think it is important that we think of this as a current、um, story. We don't think of it as taking place in the past.、Um, and this, you know, he's referred to as Beowulf. He's addressed as Beowulf.、Um, And for me, that's kind of something that、uh, was a, a little bit of an abstract thing.、Um, I don't necessarily expect anybody to take seriously that a modern-day doctor's name would literally be Beowulf. 
So there's a little bit of you know narrative distance there, sort of authorial distance that I was interested in, in having, um, which I think allows for a little bit of abstraction in the piece in general. So for example, it allows the lullaby that's shared between Beowulf and his mother to be really set apart and at some point, you know, out of time to a certain extent. And then feel as though it's this very, very, um, uh, you know, um, glimpse into the inside lives and the inside relationship of this mother and son that we never would actually have in real. So it's not in any sense meant to be completely realistic or naturalistic, um, but yet we kind of slip in and out of something quite plausible and something you know more abstract, like the name of the character being Beowulf, for example, or the lullaby that they share. Um, so as I was saying, there's a few sort of touch points to the um, original epic poem that I was interested in, in preserving um, or evoking, I guess would be the better way of putting it. Uh, although, um, you know, the role that the original characters play is very, very different than the role that, that my uh, analogous characters play. Um, so for example, the idea of the monster, you know, is very abstract. You could think of the monster as being the PTSD that Beowulf suffers from. Right. Um, Grendel is that. You could think of Grendel as being um, embodied to a certain extent in all of the characters, you know, they each have Grendel sort of inside of them. Um, and the point at which the, in the epic poem Beowulf rips Grendel's arm out is reflected a little bit in the idea of Beowulf's mother ripping the IV out of her arm as she's leaving, the, as she's going to leave the nursing home facility. Um, so it is anything but the killing of a monster, you know, in that, in that regard. It is, I think, very much the effort to save herself, you know, the effort to rid herself of a situation that seems very, very scary. So in that sense, in that moment, she takes the role of, of Beowulf a little bit to rip, you know, this thing that's very scary, but out of her own arm. Um, and also, I think, you know, uh, uh, structurally in the opera that happens in the first half, as opposed to in the epic poem when that really happens towards the end of the poem, um, right before Beowulf is sort of victorious. Um, and uh, beyond that, uh, really, there's very little relationship to the epic poem. Um, again, just the idea of evocation, which I think is kind of interesting, particularly in opera, which mm -hmm. operates so much on archetype. And, you know, because opera tends to be something that is um, large, despite the fact that this is a very small, you know, chamber opera with just three characters, um, the stories tend to be large, the stories tend to be um, very clear cut, not a whole lot of detail in them. And this is because, you know, they're being conveyed by music and the nuance is really in the music. Um, so all of those things combined, I think, brought me to the decision to uh, use those archetypes, but loosely, evocatively. Well, I mean, I was going to ask how did the anonymous authorship affect your um, libretto writing for the opera? But I mean, something tells me that you almost had a lot more liberty with it, kind of going away from the epic poem in some ways and making it a little bit more modern in that sense. Um, can you actually tell me a little bit about the libretto writing 
Sure. So, uh, you know, uh, libretto writing has actually been something that I've been interested in, in a long, for a, quite a long time. The first libretto that I wrote was, I want to say, two librettos before Beowulf. Um, and it's a fascinating learning process, really, writing libretti. Um, and, you know, you can study the past librettos and see what works and all of that. But what's really interesting about trying to study older librettos, or even current ones that you find are good, like, for example, I find the, the librettos that George Benjamin works with um, to be really one of the best um, current librettists. Uh, um, but anyway, the interesting thing about that is that you have to realize that it's the relationship between the libretto and the music that kind of makes the piece work. Um, and that's a magical and in some ways unknowable alchemy. Um, but what I do find, um, and now I'm somewhere on my fifth or seventh libretto, I think, um, writing these things is that it's very important to um, have a clear idea of whether you're painting in watercolor or whether you're sketching with a Sharpie marker. Meaning, is the whole thing going to be kind of abstract um, and uh, use that sense of the abstract very much to the piece's advantage and purposefully leave some things um, up to interpretation? Or is the story going to be so clear that um, it's almost as if, as I said, you're sort of drawing these figures in Sharpie marker on an outline in Sharpie marker. And you know, the interesting thing is you can combine these things, but you have to do it very, very strategically. And knowing that the music can play with that and that the watercolor bits of libretto will need to be very, very fleshed out musically. It tends to be the Sharpie marker bits that, that will move quicker musically. Um, and the more abstract bits that you can expand a bit more um, I found this to be the case with Beowulf for sure. Uh, it took, you know, I always find that when I write libretto, it will take many, many passes through. Um, and usually what will happen is that the initial draft will be overwritten, which I think is actually very common for, for writers. And then um, the process of winnowing back to find what's the bones of it. Right is really, really important. Um, writing a libretto is so different than writing a play. When you're writing a play, you look for a complete theatrical experience. And despite the fact that there's a great deal of you know, directorial license um, to be taken after the writing of the play, nevertheless, you're looking for something that stands. You know? You're looking for something that is um, very nuanced on its own and can include a lot of um, twists and turns and things that are not necessarily uh, as concise as what you're looking for with a libretto. You know, I suppose the analogy would be, um, or yeah, would be um, creating a fully fleshed out sculpture as opposed to a scaffolding. Oh, wow. Um, so with a libretto, what you're looking for is something that is, uh, you know, even if it does include, as I said, sort of watercolor bits, and I've mixed my metaphors now in terms of painting and building. Um, nevertheless, you're looking for a lot of space. You know, you're looking for something that will allow the music to drive the bus, essentially. Um, so the process, again, of editing back is a, a fascinating one, I find. And even if you want your libretto to be poetic, it has to be poetic in the most spare terms possible. Um, 
And for me, the reason for that is that, you know, the, it's the music's job to be poetic and having poetry upon poetry is very um, obscure. And yeah. Difficult to grab hold of and oftentimes distancing for an audience um, and distancing for the story too. You know, you want a world that you can enter that's entirely absorbing, entirely self-contained. Um, and complete. So it seems as though in order for that to happen, there has to be a real uh, symbiotic relationship between the libretto and the music. Um, and, um, you know, libretto is functional, no matter how abstract it is, it's functional. Um, and, you know, some are really virtuosic and some are uh, much more just engines that you use. In some ways, having that control over music and libretto achieves that enviable symbiotic relationship between the two. Speaking of the music, I was looking at the score and it calls for clarinet, saxophone, violin, and percussion. Uh, and not to mention just, like you said, only three singers. Even for guerrilla opera standards, that's pretty small. Uh, what kind of challenges did you face writing an opera for an even smaller chamber orchestra? It was challenging. Um, one of the things that I find is my greatest strength as a composer is orchestration and finding um, colors and, and playing with the various uh, types of gradations that you can get with instrumentation. Um, and I worried a little bit at the outset about that. And I worried whether I wouldn't have quite the palette that I would like to work with. Um, but I found that there are a lot of ways uh, to glean a great deal from that tiny ensemble. Um, and to find uh, uh, colors that I found, you know, really fascinating and, and beautiful within that small instrumentation. The players, of course, were just really first rate, which helps a lot. Um, but one of the things that I found to be an interesting thing to do was to uh, evoke, at times, a medieval type of music, which again, I think evokes the epic poem to a certain extent, points to it at least. So one of the ways in which I did that was in one section of the piece, and I think if I'm remembering rightly, it might happen in a couple of sections of the piece, there's this, you know, kind of additive frequency type of thing. Um, so that they end up being, uh, you know, essentially sort of microtonal um, tunings in certain places of the piece. Um, it, this is a, similar to, but it had to be a stripped down version of a technique that Claude Vivier used in Lonely Child, um, referred to it funnily as Le Couleur. Um, so, you know, I used something kind of similar to that. It, it's in some sense a similar concept to ring modulation, but of course much simpler. Um, and this gave me an interesting thing to play with because what it ends up doing basically is giving you a somewhat clangorous sound that feels, you know, loosely evocative of old instruments. Um, so that was something kind of fun to play with. You know, another, uh, for me anyway, great aspect of this was having the vibraphone available um, because that does give a sustain and does give a halo to the sound, which otherwise is not there with the other instruments. Um, you know, it's funny, I'm a harpist, and I find that um, that lifelong relationship with that instrument does indeed sort of uh, influence the sound world that I gravitate to orchestrationally. And, you know, it was pointed out to me by a very close friend that oftentimes within my music, there's some funny ghost of a harp all the time. Um, um, I can see so that. to 
Yeah, so to a certain extent, this idea of a halo around the sound is something that's very attractive to me. The other part of it that I found to be attractive was not so much about my own harp sensibilities, but more about the idea that the piece itself demanded something of a halo. You know, it's not a, you know, there there is, as I was mentioning before, a lot of abstract elements to the telling of this story. So the idea of um, blurring and, and creating a little bit of a... Um, you know, dust around the picture was very, very important to me. So um, the other thing that I found really appealing was that basically these instruments are treated like soloists, you know, and they sort of have to be. I mean, there's, of course, a combination between very, very um, integrated ensemble playing and the treatment of them as soloists. But I like the idea that when you have the violin singing by itself, it's not a section, it's one. Um, and likewise with the others too. But uh, I think that for me corresponded very much with the idea that each of these three characters is, is uh, lonely in a sense, you know, they, they're isolated from each other, right. despite the fact that they're very much kind of on top of one another, particularly the old and his mother. Wow. Um, I think I'm gonna get a little selfish here just because uh, I don't think, well, the thing is, uh, as an ensemble pianist, uh, getting a piano score, a piano vocal score was so mm -hmm. welcoming because it never- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so thank you, by the way. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, I remember the first time I got it, I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, but I do think it is rather, uh, what was it, the neglected part of an opera production in some ways. Um, obviously I'm biased here, but, uh, but there is such art to transcribing, uh, you know, many voices into a singular uh, instrument. Um, do you mind sharing uh, this process of transcribing an opera, per se? Yeah, I mean, actually, in this instance, I did not make my own piano reduction. It was made <laughs> by, you know, my copyist. And as oh, I right. understand it, it was a fairly straightforward process. Right, 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 right. All of those notes basically could go in. Um, there was nothing that couldn't be on a keyboard. Right. Now, this is a little bit different than reducing an orchestral piece for the piano. I think that is definitely something that I would want to put a personal stamp on. And to, right, um, right. You know, and I think that tends to be, as far as I see it, a very suggestive process, more than a literal one. Um, yeah, right. So the idea being that you wanna get the sense of the thing and make it work for the piano so that the piano speaks as clearly as your orchestra speaks, which is gonna be different. It's a little bit like the reverse. You know, when you orchestrate a piano piece, it's gonna be anything but literal. Um, right. I had an experience recently where I orchestrated two of uh, Charles Ives' songs for the American Composers Orchestra. It was a very fun project. And what I found to be fascinating was that, um, you know, the way in which the piano resonates oftentimes um, has to do with where you release and how the pedal is there. And, you know, you don't necessarily sort of bear down upon the sound in order to resonate. It's a much more sort of, you know, it's a, again, a bit like the harp in that sense, you know, the more relaxed you are plucking the strings and the more you come away from them, the better the resonance is gonna be. So, uh, you know, if you have um, a kind of an attack, a repeated attack on uh, the same chord, let's say something like that, then I find that oftentimes the best way to translate them to the orchestra, and there's a lot of different ways of going about this, it's quite contextual, but this is just one example, would be that you put some sustaining instruments on that um, sustained chord, but then you provide the sense of the attack 
with the ringing percussion. So, you know, that's something that would be an example of a very non-literal way of orchestrating. Right. And likewise, if you have a sound that's sustained for a very long time in the orchestra and you need to, you know, reduce it down for the piano, then you need to be equally creative in that sense right. too. Um, whether it's a figuration or whether it is, um, you know, kind of a, a metaphorical translation of that sustained chord, you know. I do hope, you know, more composers write, you know, piano vocal score. That'd be nice. That'd be really nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I sort of feel that it's necessary for this kind of thing. I mean, certainly with the opera that I wrote for the Miller Theater, Desire, you know, the, the, the rehearsal pianist was indispensable, such an important part of the rehearsal process. And as with this one too, um, although I wasn't as privy to the rehearsal process with Beowulf as I was with Desire. Um, yeah, but I just cannot imagine how this would possibly work without that. I don't know either. I'll be completely <laughs> honest with you. You know, trying to read yeah. you know, clarinet here, saxophone here, and then viola. I'm just like, okay. And, and it's really what? hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Just particularly if it's transposing score. Just yeah, takes, oh, yeah, you know, that, that's, that's, that's five times as long. <laughs> that's the cake. That's the cake. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway. I do believe uh, the intimacy of the score translated into the production as well, uh, as one will notice right off the bat how close everyone was to the point of being a little bit claustrophobic. Um, yeah. Could you elaborate on this design? Yeah, that was something that was really important to me right off the bat, and I was really lucky to have such an incredible designer and you know, somebody who really, really got that. Um, what I had asked for which uh, was delivered, in fact, was a set that looked, and an audience arrangement that made it look like a surgical theater. So that we sort of watched this whole thing as almost this, um, you know, it's scary. It's a scary sort of experience. And we watch the dissection of a character. We watch the, you know, um, yeah, in some ways the total, uh, um, you know, disassembly. Of, of this person's mind. Um, so uh, that was something that I really kind of specified from the very beginning and, and conceived of from the very beginning, that the, the set should feel like a surgical theater, it should feel claustrophobic. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to play with was also the aspect that we should be very privy to what it feels like to have PTSD. We should be very privy to what it feels like to be stuck. Um, so the closeness of that um, and the sense of, uh, you know, almost overheating because of the closeness of that was very important. Um, and the players, you know, they were behind a screen, a, a sort of a trans slightly transparent right. screen, which was a beautiful thing to do. Um, and at one point that screen lifted so that the interlude could be um, very clear uh, and also so that you could see them and at one point, too, you know, the instrumentalists had to come and be the surgical assistants right, as well, right. you know. So that was something that was really important, too, yeah. the, the sense of uh, um, breaking the implacable wall that oftentimes happens between, the, you know, the pit and the, um, the stage. So, uh, yeah, I, I liked that aspect a great deal. I liked the idea that, um, you know, there was always this... Uh, uh, cave, as it were, that, you know, is, can open and, and people can come out, meaning the, the pit. Um, 
there really isn't a pit at all. It's just something behind the curtain. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. There had to be some very creative staging around the idea of um, motion, motion through time, especially, you know, when the time passes between the um, exit from the nursing home into the entry of Beowulf's house. It's not... The, the, the opera itself isn't operating in real time at that moment. We, we have to assume there's a passage of possibly some days, maybe something like that, between the exit from the nursing home to the home. So um, what ended up happening, which was very beautiful, was just simply a, you know, sort of a promenade with those two characters around. Um, if not, I can't remember whether it was around the entire stage or nearly around the entire stage, but they just, you know, very simply walked around and you got the sense, I think, pretty clearly that that was a break. There was no music during that period of time. And, you know, nobody could ever break character because it was, they were always visible. Um, the nurse made an exit and an entry and the mother wouldn't, oh, she was, she was not visible in the very first uh, little bit, which is Beowulf alone. But at the same time, you know, um, there's no way of kind of putting a spotlight on somebody and having somebody else be on stage but dimmed. Um, so uh, there was never any way that these um, wonderful singers were off the hook and they really, you know, sort of sustained that incredibly beautifully. And even as an audience member, it's just... <sighs> even just sitting there you're just always kind of looking down you know as, and just examining everything and well actually not even examining because i mean the word examine is that you kind of there has that word has a connotation where you just want to do that kind of action but the problem is mm -hmm. you are forced to just kind of look at what's being down there um that discomfort was oof i have to say yeah it was probably yeah um, yeah, I felt it too. And I remember sitting, you know, one, I think for one of the performances, I sat basically in the front row. Um, and for another one, I was a little bit more up. And I sat in various places, depending upon the performance. And it was a very different experience, depending upon where you were, but you're basically on top of right. the piece. Right.
minimalist set design, poignant lighting, claustrophobic experience for audience members and performers, especially when juxtaposed by unforgettable lullaby, created this haunting image of a hero who's suffering from seemingly incurable psychological trauma. Why was this the most important aspect of Beowulf? Again, I think that the idea of a hero is something that's so complicated. And oftentimes we overlook the burden on that person who has to take the role of a hero. Uh, you know, again, returning to the idea of a superhero's dark side, that's usually very much under wraps. And it's very, um, you know, it's a very, very binary view of that person. So they're either in their hero persona or they're in their you know, person persona. Um, and I don't think that's possible. I think that, you know, that the whatever suffering that person goes through will creep in to all aspects of their life eventually. Um, and another thing that was really tragic about that character is that he sort of couldn't seek help. You know, he was in this role of always giving help. Um, and so uh, something in him didn't allow him to reach out for help. Uh, and I do think that's also one of the ways in which um, somebody in the, that type of role can really suffer because you come to see yourself as, as a giver and you give and you give um, and something will snap. Right. Um, you know, we, we certainly don't see that in the epic poem. We see Beowulf as kind of this implacable, um, incredible thing that, you know, sort of shiningly saves the day. Um, the other thing that I should mention which is a, sort of, a, it just popped into my head, but I think it's important, is that unlike uh, the type of um, savior, let's say almost a Christ figure that takes on the sins of the people that this person is, you know, saving, um, this is not the case for Beowulf. You know, he is dealing with his own broken mess. Um, and it is his own broken mess that destroys him. Um, and, you know, his own, uh, yeah, this is a psychology that collapses. This is an un, unsolved memories, unsolved trauma, um, and it, it, it collapses him. A tragic hero whose biggest battle happens to be within his own broken mind. I do feel that the opera captures that human frailty marvelously. So looking back, what were some of the most enjoyable moments and challenges with Beowulf? Well, I think, um, you know, this was a process as a composer that was very interesting. It was a, um, you know, for opera, oftentimes it goes through a long workshop period. And that's something that Gorilla doesn't do. You know, they don't really workshop a piece. Um, uh, so that's a very interesting thing for a composer because oftentimes with a dramatic piece, particularly if you don't have like a dramaturg working with you along the way, uh, that, that premiere is in some sense going to be a first pass. Um, and uh, though I feel very proud of what happened and very proud of what the piece is, I still think there's work to be done there. I think there's stuff to be mined. Um, particularly with the mother's role. I think her character feels very clear to me, but I also feel as though her desire to die needs to be more clearly um, etched. Um, you know, and I think if given the chance for another pass through, I would probably make that very explicit. I would probably make her actually beg 
her son, the doctor, to help her have a physician-assisted suicide. And then the tension between them would be that he would not agree. And then right. in the final scene, when he's actually in a flashback, it would make it that much more poignant. Um, this was in some ways sort of implicit in my own mind, but I think oftentimes what happens in a first pass is the things that you feel as a writer are very clear just actually need to be clarified more. Um, in terms of the real positives, though, that came out of it, um, you know, it's a little bit like handing somebody um, something that feels super, super personal and, and very much inside your head and watching it um, come to life. And one of the uh, amazing, actually shocking parts of not necessarily being involved in the early parts of that rehearsal process was that I watched, you know, a complete piece more or less flower in front of my eyes. Um, and it was unbelievably touching to see these artists' interpretation of what this would be. Um, you know, everybody was unbelievably respectful of my vision, um, but also brought so much to the table. Um, and, you know, I found that uh, being able to kind of step in at that finished stage was both um, terrifying and thrilling and unbelievably touching. I watched a, um, I watched the first rehearsal that I saw remotely. Um, I tuned in to Skype, I want to say it was, and uh, I was in tears, you know, they ran the piece from start to finish, um, which is rarely the case, you know, I would say never been the case for me, certainly with an opera. It's always been sort of watching it grow from, you know, a baby to a toddler to a, you know, child and finally to an adult. So you watch it you know, learn to walk in a sense, but this was already a very foreign being once I saw it. So that was, you know, it was unbelievably touching um, to me and, and the story felt so intimate and felt so personal. So watching it external to myself was absolutely um, breathtaking. Um, and I think the other moment that uh, really, really was amazing to me was what was done with that lullaby and how the two characters yeah. on either side of the stage and you know up, sort of up the stairs partly and um you know you watch i think in that moment uh what happened was you saw how um intimate that relationship is and yet how complicated you know you see how in some ways the mother has held on too long and too hard to her son and how the son wants to respond exactly as she wants him to respond and yet that creates tension between them and i think in that moment especially because the space is so small you see all balled up together all this love and all this tension right oh man I, if you think about it i mean that that's probably the farthest though like physical distance they ever be in that uh in that when they're singing that duet but you know mm -hmm. because of the intimacy it just feels as if the stage just got bigger you know in that sense yeah that's absolutely yeah. true yeah oh, man. yeah and also i think the sort of out of timeness that they were yeah. able to achieve with that moment sort of takes you away in a sense um, right. so it does feel as if things open up a bit in that moment Anything to add to your experience working with the Gorilla Opera that you want people to know before the watch party? 
Well, only just how very appreciative I am of Gorilla and how appreciative I am of these incredible individuals, of these artists who brought so much to the table. Um, and the other thing that really must be mentioned is their incredible dedication to the art form and to make it something so urgent, you know. Um, I mean, I think that's so so fitting and so wonderful given that they're called the Gorilla Opera. You know, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful thing. It's like they, they really do sort of take the form by storm and, and make it into something really, really revolutionary. Um, so I, I don't think they can be praised highly enough, really. Cool. Um... Any upcoming opera in the making? Yeah, I actually, um, so I'm working on this very strange, very different piece. Um, and, you know, I was, maybe this is sort of the evolution of my libretto writing in a sense. I was very interested in a libretto that was um, rhymed and in a scansion that's unbelievably strict. Um, so I'm working on this, you know, very darkly humorous piece right now called The Applicants. Um, which is about uh, the idea that um, death is not something that you will naturally um, experience at the end of your life. It, in fact, is run by a bureaucracy. And in order to die, you have to have the right amount of money and the right amount of connections. And if you have that, you can get a permit to die. And if you get the permit to die, then you actually have to take an exam. And if you pass the exam, then the idea is this is what's rumored then you open a door and you're sort of set free from, from your life. You know, you die and that's, the, you know, supposedly there's some wonderful afterlife awaiting you. And if you don't pass the exam, you get exiled. So you have sort of, you know, you're, you're doomed to <laughs> eternal life in a very remote place. Oh, so, no. <laughs> yeah. So it centers around one guy who's the applicant, the, the, the titular applicant. And, um, you know, he has his finances all in order. He's got his connections. He's born into money. So he's given a lot of privilege. And in fact, one of the privileges that he has as a result of his um, sort of um, birthright um, is that he can take this exam three times. So if he fails the first two times, okay. he still has a third shot at it. So, um, you know, he goes through the accountant who gets his stuff in order. He goes through a bunch of financiers who get his stuff in order. And finally, he gets the permit and he can take the exam. So he ends up failing for the first and the second go. And finally, he passes the third try. And the committee sends him out of the room to deliberate. And they deliberate. They decide that he passes. Um, they bring him back into the room. And they have the, the head of the committee has a bottle of champagne to celebrate the passage of this applicant. He pops the cork or she pops the cork off the bottle of champagne and hits the applicant in the head and it kills him. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, I should <laughs> So he, you know, he's lying there prone, dead in the exam room and the committee congratulates themselves and they say, well, he'll make a fine addition to the committee. So as it turns out, death is in fact not uh, you know, an exit through a door into some lovely eternal afterlife, but it's just that you enter a higher level of bureaucracy. <laughs> what is this happening? This sounds amazing, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. So um, I'm working on the libretto right now. Um, I have an amazing dramaturg, Corey Ellison, that I'm working with. Um, 
to sort of shape this piece and you know figure out how the blocking works and how all of that goes and how you know the brain prospers drama. And initially the plan was that it was going to be um, immediately for live performance, but then of course the pandemic happened, so I thought, well, I'll animate it. You know, this will be an opera for animation. Cool. So uh, you know, what's going to happen is that I will go through this unbelievably laborious process of um, creating literally thousands, hundreds upon thousands of slides. Um, and, uh, you know, um, using this program called Dragonfly to figure out the animation and make it all go. So it's going to be, you know, it'll come out in, a, in that format first. And then when it's possible to have people together in a live situation, then it will be live. But the idea is that, you know, there will be the voices that are eventually intended to play the characters singing the roles in the animated version. Um, but it will be two of piano reductions, speaking of piano reductions. Um, so, you know, but the idea eventually, even in the live version, is to have a very small band. Um, and the, the sense of it, sort of the... the um, you know, the general atmosphere will be almost as a sort of a ragged traveling theater group that puts on this show yeah. in various weird little places. <laughs> <laughs> well, please let us know <laughs> when this happens. Oh, I will. I'll keep yeah, you posted. Yeah, thank yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and hope to see you at the watch party. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for the vital role you played in my coming to life with this piece. And um, I really, really look forward to the watch party. And this concludes this episode for Gurla Opera Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and hope to see you at the watch party of Beowulf by Hannah Lash on July 23rd. Till then.